Ready to go. <laughs> it's an honor to be here once again in this little church, but a warm church. We have a wonderful little oasis in Lucerne Valley with our orchards and gardens, and it's a very peaceful area in our yard. But it's something very special to come up to this little church and start to leave the desert and start to see all the pine trees and then to come into this place. And we feel especially honored this morning. Madeline, you were mentioning about your Thanksgiving. I'm thankful that your family is here this morning too. It's very good. In mid-August of 2016, the Blue Cut Fire in Cajon Pass went from zero to 37,000 acres in 48 hours. Advancing as one of the most intensely fought fires in California, soon 3,000 firefighters were gathering to deal with this fire. But as urgent as fighting the fire was, there was something else that was exceedingly important to the firefighters, to the police officers, and many volunteers. And that was the evacuation of the people in the path of the fire. The cry went out through the media and door-to-door -door individuals, homes, the fire is coming. The response had to be immediate. It was a last warning. Thousands evacuated rapidly because they heard the call and they heeded the warning. Everything earthly in its path was destroyed. Matthew 25 talks about ten virgins. In that story, which we love to talk about, the five foolish and the five wise virgins, representing, we think, the church at the end of time especially. But there's another dimension of people in that story. Who gave the cry, the bridegroom is coming? There's even more to that cry it's not only that the bridegroom is coming, but go out to meet him. A divine dignitary is about ready to arrive. Go, meet him, he's coming. Go from wherever you are at to wherever he is. Is built into that parable of the ten virgins. The Adventist Church has a little history regarding the midnight cry, the cry that goes out to meet Christ. Between the years 1830 and 1843, there was an Advent movement, and I'm sure most of you know this history, sparked by biblical research of William Miller, and that was the Millerite movement. When it was discovered that 1843 was a mistake, and then October 22, 1844 was the second choice that they had, that was a period of time that 
the new cry went out, behold, the bridegroom cometh. And they were very certain that October 22, 1844 was going to be that time. Since the Bible says that that was a midnight cry, they called it the midnight cry. But we know by the ten virgins and by many of the prophecies, which we're going to get deeper into today, that at the very end of time, there is another midnight cry. In prophecy, midnight refers to the darkest time of planet Earth. Ellen White describes this time, and just very briefly, because our time is very short, at midnight there was a cry that was made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go out to meet him. In the summer of 1844, midway between the time when it had been first thought that the 2300 days would end and the autumn of the same year, and Ellen White is describing this period very accurately, to which it was afterwards found that they extended the message, this proclamation went out, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. How did they know that? they had some understanding of prophecy to give this cry, and they had some understanding of timing prophecy that they knew that period of time was very near. Who gave that cry? Well, historically, it was human beings. Are human beings going to be giving that final cry, or are we going to be part of the ten virgins at the end of time. Ellen White describes many of these things, and I'm going to skip over some of her quotations regarding this. But she describes at the end of time, there's going to be another cry that's going to be going out, that the bridegroom is coming, and those individuals she talks about are going to be individuals that come from everyday walks of life like us here this morning, individuals that perhaps don't have a lot of training in theology, individuals that have jobs, an eight-to-five jobs, but they will be enraptured by the message, they will be filled with the Holy Spirit, they will be under conviction that Jesus is about ready to come because they know something and because they know something about the time we're living in and the events that we are seeing, they will in confidence be able to go out and say, behold, the bridegroom is coming. There's something we have to know to be able to do that at the right time. And that's what I want to address here more deeply this morning. How will we know when to make that cry? You want to be among the 144,000? How will you know when to be an activated crier? This is a query that we must answer if we are going to be part of the 144,000. 
Did you know that anyone who claims, and I'm going to start getting deeper now in some of our studies this morning, did you know that anyone that claims that Jesus delays his coming is a deceiver? Did you know that Jesus said that whoever claims that the end of time has come is a deceiver? Unless. And that's what we want to talk about this morning, what that unless really represents. How will we really know? How will we be able to say the end of time has come and not be a deceiver and to really know? That is one of the reasons Bible prophecy has given to us. And I want to explore some of the answers to that this morning in the book of Luke, in Jude, and also in Peter. Luke is a good place, perhaps, for us to begin to answer that unless question. The disciples were very interested in Christ's prediction that the temple was going to be destroyed and that he also would return once again. Those were promises. Turn in your Bible with me to Luke 21, and we'll begin our study here this morning more deeply into some of these issues. Luke 21, beginning with the seventh verse. I'm going to be reading from different translations up here in my notes this morning. But just, it really makes no difference which one that you have. Teacher, they ask, when? That's a timing question the disciples are asking. Teacher, the disciples ask, there's four disciples that we believe were there asking these questions. When, a timing question, Will these things, that's plural, it's plural in the Greek, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign and evidence that the timing has come, that they are about another timing issue to take place? Isn't that interesting? The disciples are very fascinated about the end of time. They want to know some of the details when Jesus is coming, and they want to know some of the details about when the temple is going to be destroyed. In that questioning, there are two timing expressions. There's the issue of the sign, and they want to know some orientation to a sign that will tell them that the time has come. Notice how time is really the focus, when. That's how their questions begin. But the sign would be the orientation to help understand. I'm going to need a glass of water up here. If somebody could just find for some for me, I'd appreciate it. They don't doubt the end, nor even the loss of the temple, but notice that the word things is plural. They are concerned about when the temple will be destroyed and when Jesus will come. Now, as near as we can determine, 
except maybe for the Apostle Paul, the disciples pretty much felt that the destruction of the temple and also the second coming of Christ, they felt to happen at the same time. And there's a little veering of this with Peter. We know that Paul eventually understood the distinction of that. But this is part of everything being bunched together in this one question. The next verse, verse 8. He replied, Jesus is now giving a reply. Thank you, thank you. Appreciate it. That may be the biggest glass of water I've ever had up in a podium. <laughs> he replied, watch out that you are not deceived. Uh-oh. He's not giving a direct answer. He's going to come through the back door in his answer. For many will come in my name claiming I am he and that the time is near. Do not follow them. Somebody is going to claim they're him or they're speaking in his name. The Greek would suggest that. Or that the end is near. Don't believe them. It's interesting. So Jesus is starting out in a very strange way. Christ had similar concerns of those expressed in Matthew and Mark. But here in Luke, there's much more detail. Be careful, be careful that you're not deceived. Why? Individuals might even teach or preach in the name of Jesus regarding end-time prophecy, which is implied. They might even say that the end is near. Be careful. It's interesting. I have a booklet that I've stapled together that I've gotten off the internet. It's about three quarters of an inch thick, single space of the history of the people since the time of Christ who has claimed that the end is near. Interesting, isn't it? Be careful. If that claim is being made, it might be deceptive. Don't follow them, Jesus says. It sounds wrong, doesn't it? Shouldn't we be preaching that Jesus' coming is soon? There's a caveat. There's something else that has to go along with this message. The end that Jesus is referring to in the Greek is hokarios. That's referring to the second coming. And so these people are preaching that Jesus' coming, true coming, is occurring. But Jesus says, be careful, you might be deceived. Fascinating. Jesus is clearly teaching the disciples that there will be a future time when he will return. He didn't return in their day. Then how can we know that that coming is near? The bridegroom cometh. That's to be our cry. How do we know how to make and when to make that? The Bible tells us. And I'm working my way forward through understanding some of these questions and issues. Hopefully that we can understand this more as we come towards the end. The next verse, verse 9. Jesus said, but when, that's another timing, when ye shall hear of wars and commotions or chaos, be not terrified or terrified terror in deep distress. For these things must first come to pass, 
but they end and say, yeah. Isn't that interesting how Jesus is dealing with this? He's putting aside some of these negative things. It's not the declaration of the end by itself. It's not the declaration that there's coming in the name of Jesus. It's not that there is wars. It's not that there's chaos throughout the world. Those aren't the issues to focus on when we talk about end time things. There's other things that Jesus wants us to be aware of. Obviously, those things are important, but not by themselves. Let's move on. Jesus is trying to help us to understand prophecy. Now comes the signs he wants us to focus on. Verse 10 and 11. Then said he unto them, scholars find that little phrase very fascinating. Then said he unto them in the Greek is a transition phrase. He's been giving some portion of his answer. Now he's making a transition into truly answering the question for the disciples. Then said he unto them, nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, that's wars, and wars by themselves don't stand. But then Jesus said, and great earthquakes shall be in diverse places and famines and pestilence, and fearful sights and great signs shall be in the heavens. This transition phrase that Jesus is making when you see these things, and I, I don't have time to go into all the Greek and the details, but when you see these things coming collectively, then you can start to say the time of the end has come. Then you can start to say those wars are important. Then you can start to say the chaos that's coming throughout the world is important. So Jesus is putting a different dimension on how we deal with some of these things. Wars, earthquakes, famines, pestilence, fearful sights, anything worse than barbarism going on right now. It's amazing to me that we don't see more of the, in the news of the barbarism that's happening in this world. Signs in the heavens, cyclones, hurricanes, tornadoes. We have shared with some of you folks in the past, I'll hit it this afternoon very briefly, that these things collectively began, and this has been studied by two agencies, two international agencies, one related to these signs, a Catholic agency in Belgium and an insurance agency in Germany. These things began to change collectively exponentially in 1978. I'll mention that very briefly and tell you why I'm saying that this afternoon, but that'll just be a minor part of our study this afternoon. <coughs> well, there's a cry clearly when we say the bridegroom is coming. Jesus is saying clearly at the end, your orientation will be when you start to see some of these things occurring collectively. So we have moved now into a time, a generational time. 
Can we set a date for Christ's coming? No way. Have we said that it's now approaching? I think that's the intimation that Jesus is giving. When we see these things happening, we now know that it's beginning to approach. We're getting very near to that point in time. Well, let's move on to a Peter principle, which is the title of the sermon this morning. And after I gave Mary Angelie that title, I regret it. I had that title. I think there was more creative ways I could have expressed that, but let's deal with Peter a little bit here. As the end approaches, it will become increasingly apparent that evil is coming into the church. Now, it's very easy for us to say when we talk about that that we think of our church. I think biblically the best way to think about some things, though I'll make some statements about our church, I think that many of the things in the Bible refer to the Christian world in general. Jews call, Jude calls this apostasy fearless mockers coming into the church. They were present back then, and he said they would be present at the end of time. They presume the doctrine of grace as giving them license to rebel and also to sin. Jude relates this to the last time in Jude 18. As the era of prophetic fulfillment occurs, Peter also calls this period the last days in 2 Peter 3.3, 3, that there's going to be horrible sin that's going to come into the church. Sin within the church is another sign of Jesus' soon coming. And I want to build on this momentarily. Our declarations can be more pointed. We can now talk about the end and not be called by Jesus deceivers. And we'll summarize all these as we go along. When sin enters the church, there's an eschatologic principle that Peter addresses. And he's now going to give us a message. But before he gives us a message... He says this, above everything else. Before I get into what I want to share with you, please know, I want you to know this very carefully, above everything. Isn't it interesting? In dealing with some of the end time issues, before Jesus answers questions, he makes sure that we sweep aside preconceived ideas about the end of time. Peter is now saying, before he gets into a lot of details, he said, I'm going to give you something before anything else. Know this first before anything else. Grasp this. And then your understanding will be better and your understanding will fall into place. Turn with me to Second Peter, the third chapter. Second Peter 3, and let's begin with verse 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust. Scoffers try to make the second advent one of uncertainty. They are filled with sexual lust 
that Peter already addressed in 2 Peter 2, 14 and 18. It's horrifying. Peter is building up to this third chapter. These mockers claim that there is a delay in Christ's coming. Incidentally, that is one, one of the reasons there are so many timing prophecies in the Bible. These timing prophecies God has given to us that we never, ever say there's a delay. We can understand many, many things from the timing prophecies. We never can put our finger on the exact day and the hour. But Jesus says we should know them so well that we know the season. We should know them so well, it's so close that Jesus is right out there knocking at the door. Matthew 24. Very profound when we deal with some of the details. Next verse, verse 4, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. This apostasy infiltrates the church. Paul, Jude, and Peter are really addressing this in different places. If they believed the creation story, they would have faith in God's word. It says from creation, but if they believed really in creation, they would have faith in God's word. Even today, and I'll mention our church very briefly, there has been a change of the understanding of Christ's second coming. I got this from... Someone who was back east recently and the imminent return of Jesus has been changed to the soon coming of Jesus. I won't comment, but you can start to let your imagination deal with that. This has been a change. It's not unlike the skepticism of Ezekiel. Son of man, what is this Proverbs that you have in the land of Israel? The days go by and every vision comes to nothing. Ezekiel 12, 22. Jesus talked about this tithing spirit in a parable in Matthew 24. The evil servant says in his heart, the what servant? The evil servant says in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming. He does not say that Christ will not come. He does not scoff at the idea of the second coming, but in his heart and by his actions and words, he says, the Lord's coming is delayed. He banishes from the minds of others the conviction that the Lord is coming. So other people pick up the same spirit. His influence leads men to presumptions, careless delay then they become conformed to worldliness and then move into sin. Earthly passions, corrupt thoughts take possession of the mind. And those facts that I just gave you are from Desire of Ages, page 635. I was quoting her points. But Ellen White made one statement I want to read to you that's very fascinating about these scoffers. 
This is revealed in Herod, January 5, 1869. As a people, we are surely saying by our works, my Lord delayeth his coming. Our Lord has given us a fearful caution not even to say this in our hearts. We should know the prophecy so well we never say that in our hearts. The details in the prophecies are absolutely amazing. And she is underscoring this, she's underlining it, she's yellow high marking it. Don't even ever say that God delays his coming. God always is on time. Well, let's continue with Peter shortly. The looming apostasy is the concern. And I just want to address some principles that are important to us to understand. Peter says that there's going to be apostasy in the church. There's going to be apostasy in the Christian world. Apostasy has infiltrated in a major way the Christian world right now. Apostasy has infiltrated our church in some ways. But these are some of the principles. In heaven, there was a war. Revelation 12 tells us about that war. Then we have other references in the Old Testament. At the end, he's going to war against God's true people. There will be chaos in the church everywhere. The same devil that once corrupted the kingdom of heaven, the pristine heavenly church, began corrupting God's church about two decades after Christ's ascension. It's a very fascinating to study to see that. And right now, something new is impacting the Christian world. Ellen White said that Satan and his agencies are going to invent many ways to make sinners out of saints. Phil Mills, he's a physician, recently published an article on how apostasy comes within the ranks of Christianity. He was very generic in how he wrote it. He said there's three main issues that happen. And what he's really doing, it's very brilliant what he's done. This was published just a couple months ago. He's taking the psychodynamics of what happened in heaven and also the, the quotes from Ellen White about what happened in heaven. And he's working through the steps of how Satan actually operates. Point number one, he said the first thing that Satan does he creates di discontent over imagined rights. Now, I'm going to let your imagination just expand this morning because it takes too much time to deal with each one of these individually. This creates three different kinds of groups. One group is against God. One group is for God. And one group is right in the middle, the Laodicean group. They're lukewarm. He said the worst position is the neutral position because they're neither cold nor hot. Point number two, Satan then begins to promote deceptive understanding of truth. I have rights, I have things I want to do, and then deception comes into understanding truth. 
And then point number three, once sin comes in, the next step is beginning to assert your liberties within the church body. One of the reasons we had the fall council a couple, three weeks ago was related to issues where individuals are asserting their rights. I won't elaborate again, but this is an issue administratively that has now entered our church. Peter continues. Let's go to verse number five and six. Speaking about those scoffers, for this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were made of old. Point one. Point number two, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. So he's saying these scoffers have this issue, this problem. They really don't believe in creation. They really don't have a sensitivity that there's a point in time that God's going to stand up and say enough's enough. And so there's two issues that he's bringing out here. And the warning that he's bringing out is that you're rebelling, you're becoming apostate, but there's going to be a point in time when God is really going to stand up and his wrath is going to be there and your end is going to come. Interesting. Are there a growing number of people in the Christian world that Reject creation? I know a lot of them. That's an issue. This is one of the signs of the times that Christ, or Peter rather, Peter rather, through Christ, is bringing out. The issue where the creation, that kind of God that can create, is going to be rejected. The evolutionary theory is gaining ground. I met with an Adventist anthropologist recently, and he believes that God didn't create this earth. And so there's growing issues about this is one of the signs of, this, of times that's coming in. The doubters in Noah's day died. The heavens and earth are now waiting, Peter says, to be destroyed by fire. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, this is the next verse, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment. God's going to keep his word. There is a point in time he's going to say, enough is enough. May I go another 10 minutes? Is that permissible? All right, let's do that. Pardon? Okay. Then he warned the doubters, the day of the Lord is going to come as a thief in the night. This is a beautiful study. This is a sermon really in itself, the concept of Jesus coming as a thief. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 5 says that those who are on the right side with God, Jesus will not come 
as a thief. You are children of the light. So every time we find places where it talks about he will come as a thief in the night, it really relates to individuals who are being careless about understanding truth and understanding prophecy. For these individuals, the day of the Lord is going to come as a thief in the night. So he's warning them, this is going to happen. You're going to be surprised. God's wrath is going to come. You will be surprised. You'll find that at that point there's no way of escaping. And really what Peter is saying, there's no excuse for not knowing that Jesus is coming soon. Acting as though there's a delay in his coming, it's soon, very soon, is something that we have to be careful of. And then point number three Peter is making, and this is a very interesting and problematic area, one of the signs within the church is not only the denial of the second coming of Christ, but is also sexual sin. This is it. This is clear. These are signs that Christ is coming. Now, let's put some things together here. We now know, based upon this collection of different signs, that on or about 78, there's been a new exponential curve of all these calamities. It changed. It is continuing to go up exponentially. We know that. But then if we add to some of these things, some of the things that Jude is talking about, and we add some of the things that Peter is talking about, in this generation that Jesus said is going to be the great grand finale before he comes, some of the things that you will know that this particular period of time has come are the things that's going to come into the Christian world. And as you see these things come in, you can be assured now that this is the generation period that is leading right on up to the second coming. Do you see how the logic is as we put all these prophecies together? And the question is, is there sexual sin that's coming into the church? People, look at the whole gay movement that's occurred. Transsexuals are having part of churches today. Leading out in churches. Homosexuality is being adopted. Over and over again, I could give so many, many examples. These are signs that we have entered this final generation period. And we know now that we are approaching the second coming of Jesus. It's beautiful when we start to study these things out and pull these things collectively together to help us to know we need to understand these prophecies so when the point in time comes that we cry, the bridegroom comes, you know it's the right time. And also that you have the right kind of message. Somebody may say, well, how do you know? You know these prophecies so well that you can confidently share, I know because the holy word of God has told us that. 
You see how God wants us to approach these things? These little things in prophecy go a long way to really help us to understand. And folks, we are in the generation that's going to see Jesus come. We have the signs, just like Jesus and the disciples were sharing and talking about. Well, Peter summarizes quite a few things in that chapter. I won't read those verses, but I just want to tell you a little story. Maybe you heard this before. I just heard it recently, and I thought it was very illustrative of some of the issues that we need to understand and we need to know. There was a Midwest town that had a railroad spur, a, a railroad crossing that went through this little town. And there was a man that was assigned the task to have a lantern, and he always knew when the train would come through, and so he would go out to this one road, and he would swing the lantern, swing the lantern, so no cars would cross the railroad track when the train came through. This one evening, he was kind of dozing off in his living room by his fireplace, and Suddenly he awoke and realized it was time for the train to come through and so he grabs his lantern and he ran out and not too far away was this road and he's swinging the lantern and swinging the lantern and the train came. And so did a lady with her daughter. She was driving the car and they drove right in front of the train and they both were killed. There was an inquisition that occurred to find out what really went ha what happened and it seemed like this something was wrong with what this man did nobody else was there as witnesses and that went on for several days and finally this man was found not guilty of being responsible for the death of this mother and her daughter And so everything stopped. The man went back home. His wife was with him. And he became very depressed. And he hardly spoke to his wife. And he hardly could function. And after three days, his wife asked, why? Why not be happy? You won the case. It's not your fault. And then he said to her something very crucial. There was no light in the lantern. God has given each one of us a lantern. The light that we have relates to our understanding and the knowledge of these biblical truths. God cannot handle superficial readers and students of the Bible. The truth and the moving issues of the Bible and the times we're living in and the great meaning of prophecy are, excuse me, are in the details. God wants to see these details. 
And when we understand the details, we will know the time we're living in. We will know how this cry can go out. Behold, the bridegroom comes. And then the lamp that every one of you here this morning is holding will have a light. And you'll be able to swing that light as the train is coming. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it's difficult because of the stress of life to understand that we are in solemn times. Father, I pray for each person here this morning that a curiosity to know more of your holy word, to know more about the times we're living in, to discern what truth really means and the meaning of your holy word will enrapture each mind. And I pray, Lord, as we look forward to your soon return and we want to be part of the cry, the bridegroom is coming, that our convictions will be so deep, our understanding so clear, and we are filled so much with the Holy Spirit that the cry we give will ring around the world and prepare others for your soon coming. We ask in Jesus' name.